At the moment, we're looking at kingdom living, which is essentially about how being related to a king affects the way that we live, which is a big question. Uh, And at the moment, we're in chapter 5, where Jesus talks about relationships. And today, I'm going to talk about one of the most challenging... This is probably one of the most challenging talks I've ever had to deliver. So I've had to work very hard over these last few months uh, in preparing this. But I want to look at relational purity. So in verses 27 to 30 of Matthew 5, let's just read that first of all before we get into it. So verse 27 goes like this. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, sorry, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So this is a challenging passage, um, especially in our culture today, where even the idea of purity is mocked. I mean, why wait until marriage? Why even be in a committed relationship and cries of prude for those who resist or you're not normal. There must be something wrong with you. Why aren't you having sex with your girlfriend? And if you were to believe what you see on TV, multiple sexual partners is the norm and adultery is inevitable, even seen as a conquest to celebrate, unless, of course, you're a victim of it. Uh, shows like Jeremy Kyle feast on the horror of these kinds of broken promises and fractured relationships. And so there's no doubt at all in our current context that there are very good reasons for underlining the teaching of Jesus in this passage today, who speaks against adultery and tells us to take firm action to avoid lustful thinking. And if this was purely a pastoral message, then that's what I do, what I would do this morning. But before we get there, I want to show you something else because I want us to see first the bigger context of the kingdom and what Jesus is restoring to earth through this part of his teaching. So Jesus, as we've already seen, is dealing with heart attitudes in this chapter. He's not just talking about the physical sin that is committed. And we've seen this with murder. It's not just the act, but the motivation behind the act. And it's the same with adultery. Jesus asks men especially a fundamental question here. And it relates to how do men see women? Men, how do you look at a woman? How do you see her? What do you see? When you look at a woman and as we'll see, Jesus is speaking directly into the culture of his day and the attitude that Jewish men had to women. But I would suggest that little has changed today. The attitude society still has to women is just as shockingly bad as it's ever been. 
So what Jesus teaches here is part of his bigger strategy of restoring and redeeming women. Jesus' approach to women has been described as revolutionary. And I want to give us a glimpse of this as we continue to look at what it means to advance God's kingdom. Relational purity is only possible when we rebuild the foundation upon which we view one another as men and women. And so I've just got to say, and there's no apology for this, but I'll be mostly referring to men today. Uh, But this is a very important talk for women too. And I really believe that this talk could start a revolution. So that's what I'm going for today. I'm going to pray and ask God to help me to deliver this. But that's what my heart is today. So Lord Jesus, I want to pray for a revolutionary way of uh, relating to one another here at Jubilee. But also beyond that, Lord, I pray that you do something in our nation. Lord, I pray for that. I pray your kingdom would come and what we see in heaven now transpires on earth, but start with us. Lord, we just want to open ourselves to you and say, Lord, would you search our hearts today? And this is a challenging message, but Lord, I pray that grace would heap upon grace as I speak today. I just pray, Lord, that freedom would come to many as I deliver these words of Jesus in your name. Amen. Relational purity. Let's start with a little history. First of all, how did the Hebrews view women? Well, women had a very low position in Jewish society. They were viewed as inferior to men. Uh, They had no freedom of movement and they lived under the protection and authority of their fathers if they were unmarried and their husbands if they were married. They were not educated and were normally restricted to roles of little or no authority and they couldn't testify in court. Their views were deemed irrelevant. It's a bit like some Muslim women today. They were not allowed to talk to strangers and they could only leave the house if they were doubly veiled. And some of this came from the way the rabbis interpreted the Bible, which is what Jesus refers to when he quotes, first of all, the Ten Commandments, which comes from the law of Moses. So Jesus says in verse 27, you have heard it said, quoting Moses' law, do not commit adultery. And this is a direct quote from the seventh commandment. And essentially, do not commit adultery forbids the physical act of sexual intercourse outside of the covenant of marriage. And this command comes with a penalty, which was severe, stoning by death of both the man and the woman. Now, immediately you can see how far the people in Jesus' time had strayed from the law of Moses with the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. So it should have been both the man and the woman who had been, who were brought to Jesus, but they only brought the woman to face her punishment. Adultery was a serious offense because it reflected the broken relationship of God with his people. And as with murder, God personally identified with adultery. So that, for example, with David, after Bathsheba, he's speaking to God in Psalm 51, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
And then there's the example of Joseph, who's tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he says, why would I sin against the Lord? That's in Genesis 39. Why would I sin against the Lord? And the personal aspect of this relationship of God with his people is underlined in the New Testament where Jesus' relationship with the church is described in covenantal terms as the bride of Christ. So it carries on into the New Testament. So it's something to bear in mind if you are to commit adultery. (laughs) It's a sin not only against the woman, your wife, your own body, 1 Corinthians 6, it's also a sin against God, and God takes that personally. That's adultery, how God sees it. Now, lust, or as is expressed in the Old Testament, covetousness, was not viewed in the same way. For this, Jesus hints at the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment goes like this. It says, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey that belongs to your neighbor. Now, adultery was punishable by death, but there was no penalty recorded for covetousness. So this meant that in some kind of twisted logic, the Hebrews gave covetousness or lust a much lower status because there was no punishment for it. And it kind of fitted in with the low view of women reasoning that the command appears to make coveting a woman no different to that of any other object a man might desire. Did you notice it's in the same list as the ox or the donkey? So if it's any other object that a man would desire, where's the harm in that? That was the logic. And a similar attitude, I would say, exists amongst men today. Who says, who say things like, well, what's wrong? I'm just looking. You know, I, I've just looked at her. I, I was just admiring. I don't, as long as I don't touch or do anything about it, then how can I be doing anything wrong? I mean, how can looking at pornography do anybody any harm? I'm just looking. But to the Hebrews, women were seen as objects to possess or commodities to be traded. And so the number of a man's wives or concubines would be an indication of his wealth, position, certainly a measure of his success. But, you know, as I've thought about our society today, I'm not all that sure a lot has changed. I mean, how are women viewed today? And, of course, in the so-called liberated West, women are not restricted in the same way. But are they really valued and seen for who they are and what they bring or for what they or their bodies look like? This is a picture that has been put together by a group of psychiatrists or sociologists, I should say, who've tried to determine what the ideal woman looks like. I don't know if you can read all the different names, but there's different attributes of different women that are seen to be the most beautiful aspects. How do we look at women? And I mean we because... 
I've got to just say, this applies as much to women as to men. How do we look at women? How do we judge them? Because I think women are still completely objectified. They're treated like objects to be desired or not, depending on some very narrow definitions of what is attractive. So you've only got to look at the advertising world, that women are used far more commonly than men for their sexuality in order to sell other objects. Cars, insurance, perfume. I even saw an advert this week for... um, I can't think what you call it. (laughs) What is it? Uh, Diabetes. An advert for diabetes, warning people about the risk of diabetes, and all you can see is a lady with a very tight-fitting top holding a needle somewhere down here. Diabetes. It puts women in the same place, same category as these other objects of cars, insurance, perfume, as they say, sex sells. I was looking around for some pictures to illustrate the objectification of women. I mean, it's everywhere. It's on the TV. It's on Internet pop-ups, billboards. You can't escape the message that goes out there that women are beautiful and to be desired, but not for who they are, but for what they look like. It's everywhere. I did a Google search specifically for adverts that objectify women. And I wanted to show you some of these pictures, but actually they were so sexual in nature that I couldn't in all conscience show them to you here, which kind of proves the point. One of the pictures I did consider showing you, uh, but it was too small to go on the screen, was of a lady's legs. All you can see are her legs, and the top half of her is a handbag to sell handbags. The focus of all of these adverts was on the body parts, the parts of a woman. Her legs, her breasts, her bottom or other parts, rather than viewing her as a whole person, which is the very objectification, the very definition of objectification. And I want to suggest to you, that Jesus' message is as relevant today as it's always been when he asks us, how do you look at a woman? Do you see her for who she is or as the sum of her body parts? How did Jesus view women? Because um, Jesus' attitude to women was indeed revolutionary. In his time and in his culture and by his actions, he overthrew centuries of Jewish law and custom. But it still does. And you know, if we are serious about advancing the kingdom of God, then we need to take these kind of things very seriously. 
and perhaps even make some important changes in our own hearts, especially men. There are many examples of Jesus' attitude to women in the Gospels, but especially as one commentator observes in the book of Luke. And if you read the book of Luke with this filter, it's a very interesting read. He seemed to have a particular emphasis on the restoration of women. And there are so many references, but let me pick out some of the most obvious ones from different stories of Jesus in, in the Gospels. Firstly, we see the, the, the time when Jesus ignored ritual impurity laws and allowed a woman who suffered from menstrual cycle to touch him. And rather than exposing her, I don't know if you realize why the woman who touched him in the crowd, why she was so frightened. It wasn't because she was embarrassed. I mean, the embarrassment, crumb, she lived with that. It was the fear that she would be excommunicated from her community for touching a priest. But he treated her as a person and said, go in peace. And then there was the occasion when he talked to the adulterous Samaritan woman, breaking three rules in one. Adulterous Samaritan and woman. And do you know what? He sat there and he talked to her about the deep issues of eternal life and the kingdom. He taught her. He educated her. He taught women and allowed them in on discussions about theology and the Bible. So there's the example of Mary who sat at Jesus' feet where Martha was doing the cooking. That's the woman's job. No, Mary was sat at the feet of Jesus. I want to learn. He's teaching me. He treated women equally to men time and time again. He allowed them into his inner circle. He had 12 disciples who were male, but also a large number of female followers amongst them too. There are all kinds of occasions where he uses women to illustrate kingdom principles in the stories he told. Rather shockingly, on one occasion, a woman represents God in the parable of the lost coin. don't know if you realize how shocking that is. Or the bridesmaids are used to represent readiness for Jesus' return. And the persistent widow is a model of prayer, the kind of prayer that touches God's heart. If you want to see what persistent prayer is like, look at a widow. Look at a widow woman who desperately needs something from God. That's your example of prayer. One of my favorites is that he appeared to one or more women after his resurrection, even though under Jewish law, they couldn't be seen to be reliable witnesses, which is probably why the male disciples didn't accept what they said and why Jesus had to rebuke them. In short, Jesus treated women not as objects, but as joint heirs of the kingdom. He trained them, he respected them, he discussed theological issues with them. He honored them, and he let them come close to him. And yet, somehow, despite the lies that are on the internet, Jesus was completely without sin in those relationships. So we've seen the law of Moses, 
Now let's look at the law of Jesus. Verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I hope you see that the first thing that Jesus does here is to switch the category from the command not to covet, which has no punishable outcome, to the command not to commit adultery, which means that now the penalty for lust is the same as for those who commit physical adultery in God's eyes. That's scary, isn't it? Don't click to play. There is a clear indication from Jesus' teaching here that a woman is not to be thought of as an object to be collected or desired, but as a person who must be seen rightly and honored for who she is. Now, contrary to the rabbinical view, Jesus teaches that it is the lust in men as much as anything else that stands behind adultery. In fact, Jesus says, you will need to take drastic action, men, if you want to avoid the punishment of hell for thinking wrongly about a woman who is not your wife. Women are precious to God. They are his daughters. And there will be consequences for those who refuse to acknowledge this. Let that sink in for a moment. Just feel the weight of it. Women are precious to God. They are his daughters. And there will be consequences for those who refuse to acknowledge this. Let it get right into your heart. I say that this has been a difficult message to prepare, and that's because the message has prepared me first. I've had to deal with God myself in this. I'll say more about that shortly, but I just want you to know it's got to get right to the heart. So let me ask you then, how should we look rightly at a woman? How should we look rightly at a woman? According to Jesus, if any of us are going to be able to look rightly at a woman, something fundamental needs to change in our hearts. It's got to be that deep. It's got to be that fundamental. Adultery is both committed in, according to Matthew 5.28, in the heart, but it also comes from the heart. Matthew 15.19, adultery is in the heart and comes from the heart whether it's the kind of adultery that only happens in the imagination or it's the physical act itself. Jesus says that to him, they are the same thing. So if you're entertaining lust in your life, then this is a matter of the heart, and the heart is also the place from where you need to change. Your thinking about women needs to change. (laughs) It needs to come from a much deeper place than I feel bad about what I just thought. It's got to come from a deeper place than that because what you just thought comes from somewhere. 
It comes from values, a worldview that you have about women and their function and place. What you just thought is the symptom of that worldview. And to some extent, you know, the the worldview that you have is not your fault. You know, we are bombarded with lies about sex and women and relationships from a very young age. And if you followed lust down the, the road of pornography and inappropriate relationships or innuendo, then your belief system will be saturated with lies that need to be broken. So this worldview may not be completely your fault, but man of God, it is your responsibility. You need to take action and ask the Holy Spirit to get to the roots of why you think the way that you think. You're following me. And as I say, this is something that God has been dealing with me on actually over the last few years. And especially in a church context, I found him challenging all kinds of wrong thinking towards women that comes from a background which was quite authoritarian. A woman had to know her place. (laughs) And without realizing it, I took into my marriage the emphasis of the command, wives, obey your husbands, much more than the compelling command, husbands, love your wives. Actually, that's much harder. (laughs) Because the example of loving your wives is Jesus himself. Okay? Somebody once said to me, don't you worry about your wife obeying you if you're not loving her. If you're loving her right, she'll obey you. And for anyone who knows Alison, you can imagine that uh, this background has given me some challenges to overcome. She's no wilting wallflower, no pushover. And she knows her mind. She knows who she is in God. And even recently, I felt the need in preparation for this talk today to apologize to her for not viewing her as the equal partner that God has made her. And much to my surprise and disappointment, she agreed that the apology was necessary (laughs) for some stuff. But I want to ask you men to let the Holy Spirit search your heart too and for you to change from there. Ask him to deal with you at heart level on this issue. Get it renewed. Get it cleaned up. Ask him to reveal the lies that you've been believing and get some truth into your attitude towards women. And I am literally going to pause right now and give you the opportunity just to ask the Holy, invite the Holy Spirit to do that. So why don't you just bow your heads now. Let's everybody just bow our heads. And women, I'd like you to pray for the men as well. Just silently before God. Just come before God now and ask him, men especially, God, will you search my heart? Reveal the lies that I've been believing. Help me to change from this level.
For some of you, it's because of upbringing. For some of you, it's even because of theological understanding. For others, it's actually just worldliness. Let God search your heart. Lord, I just want to pray for our men. And even for those that are listening on the internet now, I just pray, Holy Spirit, will you search our hearts? Lord, would you get to the heart of the matter in each one of us and set us free for your name's sake, for your glory, Jesus, and for the sake of our women too. Amen. Okay, now I've laid that foundation and set that out, talking about a right attitude that comes from the heart and getting that right. Now I can talk to you about overcoming lust. We quite often try to do it the wrong way around. If you've got the wrong heart attitude, you're never going to overcome lust. You've got to get the right attitude towards women before you can start to view them properly. So having done that, let me just share with you from a much stronger position uh, some strategies for handling lust. And I really believe that if you take this to heart, what I've said today, men, that this will revolutionize your life. And there will be some freedom for you in this and some victory. So some strategies for handling lust. Lust is a battle that takes place in the mind and there's nobody that's immune from it. I have never met a man that has never had some kind of problem at some time. So if there are any here, feel free to leave. I'll talk to you about it later because I'm a little bit puzzled by that. I've never come across any men who have not struggled with that in some way. And so the strategies that I want to share with you aren't just theories. They come from my own battles in this area. And so uh, before I give these strategies, let me just say it's obvious, but I want to say it because somebody might pick me up on it later. I'm assuming already that you have a good relationship with God and that you are constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the assumption before I give you these strategic ideas. Because, you know, we do need help from God for this. And it says that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of self-control. So there you go. If you're lacking self-control, you need more of the Holy Spirit. He's a spirit of self-control. And we're going to need God's help if we're going to remain pure in this world. So firstly, especially with what I've said, uh, men, when you look at a woman, don't objectify her. But see her as a whole person. Um, can I just say as well, I went through this with Alison because I didn't want to freak the women out with some of the stuff I'm going to say. So some of it I've toned down for the women, actually. But um, men, you know what I'm talking about. So don't objectify her. See her as a whole person. Look at women differently. You know, a woman is much more than the sum of her, her body parts. She has a personality, a family ambitions, desires, responsibilities. She has concerns and feelings, and she worries about what people think about her and how she looks. Women? Is that right? One woman agrees. (laughs) 
Okay, she has all of those things and you were just ogling her. You know, rather than depersonalize them, we need to personalize them. Stop being so shallow. Practice looking more deeply. So I'm not telling you not to look at women. I'm telling you to look at them more deeply for the whole person that they are caring about them rather than treating them as objects. And one of the things that has really helped me in this is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul advises a young church leader who obviously has some struggles in this area because in the next book, Paul encourages him to flee youthful lusts. So he obviously has some challenges, and he says, this is how you look at the women in your church like this, he says. And I'm using the message version because I love this phrase, reverently honor an older woman as you would your mother. Now, guys, if you've got a bad attitude towards your mother, there's something there that you need to deal with first because otherwise you're going to view other women in the church who are older than you in a a disrespectful way. So reverently reverently honor an older woman as you would your mother and the younger women as your sisters. And I know that families are fractured these days and there are difficulties in families, but there's something in that. There's something of a natural connection with your sister that's different from a woman who isn't your sister. And you can have a deep friendship even with your sister if you can view women in that way. And I would add as well, perhaps because of my increasing age and stage, younger women as daughters. I found that really helpful. I love the fact that I've got lots of daughters everywhere now, even in different countries. Reverently honor an older woman and the younger women. See women as you would, members of your... Yeah, hold on. The thing about... (laughs) I just picked up on that, you cheeky what's-its. I have daughters all over the world, but I assure you that there's entire purity in in that relationship. (laughs) Spiritual daughters, I should have said. But I actually think of them as natural daughters because that helps me. I can be loving and respectful to them. Okay. I was in Bedford just a little while ago, and as I was, uh, we were worshipping, I looked around the room, and this young lady, who I know quite well, caught my attention, and I thought, what a beautiful young lady she is. Because actually, you know, there's nothing more beautiful than a lady who's worshipping God. And she was just worshipping, and I thought, what a beautiful girl she is. The guys in this church need to get their act together. I think that a lot, you know. Guys, single guys, you need to get your act together. There's some amazing young ladies out there who are passionate for God. What is the matter with you? So I was thinking all this, and then I thought, well, I better just check that I'm not being lustful. No, I'm not. I'm not being lustful at all. I am genuinely admiring this young lady. And then the thought suddenly came to me, go and tell her. What? How can I do that? No, go and tell her. Go and encourage her. So I thought, okay, so I got to the end of the meeting and I made sure there were people around so that it wasn't creepy. And I said, do you know, I just want to tell you, I said, if I was your dad, I would be so proud of you. 
I said, I don't know what kind of relationship you've had with your dad or, or what's, what's, what that's been like, but do you know you are a beautiful, godly woman. I would be so proud of you if you were my daughter. And she filled up immediately. And she said, that means so much to me. My dad died this time last year, and I was feeling sad today. <laughs> Do you know, guys, I'm so glad I got my junk sorted out enough so that I could say that to that young lady and build her up like that and be a dad to her. So if that helps you, be a dad. Aim to be a father. There aren't many fathers in the church. Aim to be a father with all purity. <sighs> See women as you would members of your own family. Or put it in this way. How would you feel if men were viewing your mother, that's creepy, sister or daughter like that, like you are? How would you feel? There's somebody else's mother, sister or daughter. That helps me. Secondly, don't confuse attraction with lust. Don't confuse attraction with lust. You know, men, lust is more than just noticing a pretty woman. <laughs> One of the things I found is how vulnerable men can be to condemnation so that we, especially men that want to be godly, want to be pure, and because of that vulnerability, they start, they think themselves into sinning when they haven't been anywhere near it yet. Do you know what I mean? It's like you can feel guilty just for noticing beauty or catching yourself noticing, and then you immediately deny their attractiveness because somehow to acknowledge it would be wrong in some kind of way that you can't work out. And and then you get yourself into this trap where actually you are then thinking about, actually they are really attractive, but I mustn't think that. And then before you know it, you get yourself in a right old mess. Don't confuse attractiveness with lust. This isn't lust. It's just attraction. It's natural. Just like you see a beautiful view. And actually not acknowledging to yourself that you might be attracted to someone can be a trap in, in itself. You know, supposing there's somebody in your workplace that you're finding attractive. If you don't acknowledge that, you could end up developing an inappropriate relationship with them by accident. Just because you're attracted, there's a kind of chemical reaction that goes on. Be careful. Although it's not wrong to be attracted, it can lead you to somewhere that you don't want to be. And if necessary, as I have done, in those kinds of situations, share it with somebody so that you can keep an appropriate relationship. They can ask you about it and you can protect yourself. Now, if you start to give yourself to this attraction, and you imagine yourself putting your hands where you shouldn't or letting your eyes drift to areas they shouldn't, or you begin to imagine having sex or seeing her naked or even gets into your dreams, okay, that's lust. But listen, there are a series of decisions that you have to make before you get to that point. And I want to suggest to you, because this is a freedom message, okay? I want to suggest to you that... The boundary between attraction and lust is probably further apart than the accuser would have you think it is because he wants to trap you. Allow attractiveness just to be attractiveness. 
and don't take those further steps. Don't get talked into those next few steps and break the habit of doing that as well. Break the habit of going there, taking those next few steps. So don't confuse attraction and lust. Thirdly, don't feed lust. Starve it. See, lust is a parasite with an insatiable appetite. It doesn't matter how much you give yourself to it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it grows and grows and grows. It's insatiable. Feeding it only makes it worse. And if you're feeding it on a regular basis through magazines, internet porn, or films that you watch, I urge you to cut off the source. Jesus says, pluck out your eye. Or cut off your right hand. Maybe you need to so you can't use the mouse anymore. But do something drastic to avoid lust. I don't actually mean you cut off your hand, by the way, or anything like that. But take drastic action to avoid it. Get a new job if you need to. Walk down a different street. Don't go into that shop. Get filtering software on your computer. Tell your wife. That's even harder. Or even get rid of your computer. One man I knew took this drastic step. One evening he took his computer and he threw it in the fish pond in his garden because he just realized he could not control his lust while there was a computer in the house. And that's what he had to do. I said, oh, what kind of computer was it? (laughs) (laughs) Starve lust, don't feed it. Fourthly, share your struggles with others. You see, the thing about shame is that it silences you and isolates you, which then makes you a perfect candidate for condemnation, which is a trap. Listen, no man and an increasing number of women has not struggled with this problem. And any man that says he hasn't is either very unusual, and there are a couple, or he's lying to you which is more probable. We can help one another to relational purity. Men, you can help and encourage other men. Women, you can support other women who may be struggling too. But see, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. And I'm so glad that Jesus has forgiven me. And he's forgiven you. Going to come to a conclusion now, and I know that I've been talking mostly to the men today and next time as well. Men, I'm going to be talking to you again. You can look down the page to see what we're talking about next. But I'm only following the lead that Jesus has given us in this passage. He was speaking mostly to the men. And Jesus had a revolutionary view of women that I want us to emulate in the church. Because only then we can have relational purity. And I think God wants to do something very significant amongst the women of Jubilee at this time. A month ago in one of our first meetings, it just happened to be one of the evenings when it was mostly women that came. And as I looked around at at the women, I felt an affection for them. I just thought, oh, haven't we got some great women here? Great Jubilee women, godly women Love God. And as I was looking around, I felt the Holy Spirit to say to me, says, I want you to speak words of release and commendation over them. 
I want you to honour them and the contribution they make and they will make in the future. Which, with Becky Webb's help, I went over to Becky and said, look, I've got one of those weird ones. I want a lady to help me with this. And I did. I just spoke words of affirmation and commendation and encouragement uh, over the women. And there was all kinds of other amazing stuff that happened. But as a further part of it, I felt like I needed to apologize to the women on behalf of men everywhere as a representative man, even in the church, for the way that they have been viewed, treated, and even abused by men. And I want to repeat that again today. And I want to say to you women, I'm sorry on behalf of men everywhere for those times that you've been used, abused, and treated shamefully by men and not honoured for the women that you are. And I want to release you to be the godly, powerful women that he's called you to be. And uh, Esther shared a word. She said, I feel like the lioness has been released amongst the women. That's what she said on that evening. And I agree. I think there's a, the lion of the tribe of Judah appears as a lioness in the hearts of women. And I just want to release that today and repeat that. And men, I just want to say, I'm sorry if you feel like you've had a hard time this morning, but I hope that I've helped you. But I want to encourage you to take a long, hard look at your attitude to women and the way that you think. Because it's only when you've done this and allowed God to do heart surgery on you, on you that you will be in a position to start to make some victorious steps forwards in this awful, debilitating area that God wants you to be free from. Amen.